if you've been with us for a while as a church, we've been journeying through the whole Bible in this sermon series called The Thread, preaching one sermon from each book of the Bible. Well, we kind of ended in uh, the first week of December, but decided to do our Christmas series in Revelation for a couple reasons. One, we've never done a series there. And the second uh, is that as we think about the season of Advent, uh, it, it's, a, it's a season that, that, that talks about longing and waiting and hoping. Uh, every year we commemorate it because the, the people of God were waiting and longing for Messiah to come. And so what more appropriate could we do during a season of Advent than talk about the second coming of Jesus when he returns and he makes all things new? And the longing that characterized the people of God in that season in many ways characterizes us today as we long for Jesus to return. So, today will be a Christmas sermon like you've never heard before, I promise you. <laughs> but it'll be great. Also, uh, next week during the Christmas Eve service, we're going to get a picture from Revelation 21 of God once again coming to dwell with us. And so you're not going to want to miss that. Also, in two weeks, to kind of cap the entire thread project, we're going to be doing an overview of the entire story using just the words of Scripture. So if you've never heard that before, it's called the history of redemption. You are not going to want to miss it. The whole story of the Bible using just the words of the Bible. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. God, this morning, I am more acutely aware of how we need to hear from you. We need to have our understanding of Jesus shaped and formed, not just by our thoughts and our ideals or contemporary media. We need to have our understanding of Jesus shaped by you and your word. So Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you help us to see Jesus, the risen warrior conquering king? It's in his name we pray. Amen. There are few things more vulnerable than a newborn baby. I mean, they're so cute. But there's really nothing that they can do on their own. They can't defend themselves, feed themselves, take care of themselves in any way. They are completely dependent upon their caregiver to meet all of their needs. The God who spoke this world into being, who ordered the stars in the heaven and designed the intricacies of the human body, at Christmas time, took on a body. Not just any body, not just an adult body, but a baby, a little tiny baby. The Word of God, for a time, couldn't talk, had to learn it, couldn't walk, couldn't defend himself in any way. In fact, when he was threatened in those early years, he was forced to depend upon an adopted father by the name of Joseph to scurry he and his mother Mary away to Egypt to protect them. King Herod. The Christmas story shows the extent to which God identifies with our brokenness and our vulnerability. He came and he entered our mess. He entered the world cursed by sin, riddled with injustice, and became the curse for sin himself. As he hung on that Roman cross, as he sat in that kangaroo court with Jewish leaders, he bore the full weight of injustice, but it was through losing that he conquered. It was through death and resurrection that he ultimately conquered Satan's sin and even death itself. 
Because of that, we have hope. And one day soon, he will return, not as a little baby, but as a conquering king, no, no longer submitting to a yoke of oppression or injustice or evil, but defeating evil forever. The big idea that we're going to see in Revelation 19 is in the first advent, Jesus was killed by evil, but in the second advent, the risen Jesus will defeat evil forever. Revelation chapter 19 gives us a, a vision, a picture of Jesus, the judge, the king, the warrior. It is pictured both in glorious and gory ways. It is awe-inspiring and it is nauseating. It fills us with both comfort and terror. Sandwiched between two banquets, one glorious and one gory, is Jesus the judge, the king, the justice bringer. Either way, we see he ain't a little baby anymore. In Revelation 19, he is the justice-bringing warrior king, the perfect all-seeing judge. Would you turn there with me? We'll start in verse 6, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down, or write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. <clears throat> and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence, and had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, 
and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Merry Christmas. Some of you are here today thinking, I just came to listen to some kids sing. This is not what I was expecting at all. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature using symbols and imagery to help us understand something about Jesus. The primary perspective that we are given is in the spiritual realm and from the perspective of heaven. It's meant to give us perspective of the things that we experience day in and day out, but from God's perspective. And here we see a picture of Jesus, and he is beautiful and terrible to behold, but we can be sure it is not the same picture of Jesus that we normally see at Christmas time. So, what's going on here? How do we make sense of this particular literature, and what in the world does it have to do with us today? Well, in Revelation 18, so just before this, we see that Babylon is ultimately judged and thrown down, which is interesting because Babylon didn't exist at the time of this writing. It had already been thrown down, but Babylon becomes a metaphor for all of the cities and regimes that are opposed to God, rebelling against God, thriving on violence and oppression, on opulence and greed. And in Revelation 19, Babylon finally gets what's coming to her. She's called the great prostitute, symbolically representing all of the peoples in the cities and civilizations that reject the rule and the reign of God and devolve ultimately into wickedness and greed and immorality and violence. And then on the other side of Revelation 19, we see in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, a different city that comes down. The dwelling place of God. She is the radiant, resplendent beauty and bride of Christ. She is not called a prostitute, but rather those in this city are those who embrace the rule and the reign of God, who worship Him and Him alone. These two cities, one named a prostitute, another a bride. And then as we get into Revelation 19, we see that there are two banquets one glorious, one grotesque, one beautiful, like a wedding feast. The other brutal, the gorging of birds after a decisive battle. It's meant to be to us an invitation and a warning, a picture of either eating with God or being eaten by Him metaphorically. Either embracing Him in loving relationship like that of a bride and a groom or continuing in rebellion, choosing to embrace the beast, the false prophet, and all of the lies that we believe when we think that life is better with us in charge rather than God. See, rather than loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we choose to love other things, to make our own way. And in doing so, we bow to the beast, the dragon, the enemy. And in between these pictures, these two feasts, we see a king. The one who initially came in humility, who was killed by evil to deliver God's people, but now the one to come who will put an end to evil once and for all. He will pour out the wrath of God on all those who still rebel against the true and rightful king. Now, 
according to my perspective, the timelines of Revelation are less important than the perspective that is given for us. We are shown scene after scene that reveal different perspectives about the nature of God, His kingdom, and human history. And in Revelation 19, we're given this great and glorious picture of Jesus the judge, the conqueror, the king, the one who has all authority, the one who sees everything, and the one who will ultimately bring complete justice to bear in light of those things. Let's look again at verses 11 to 16. Now you're like, well, why don't we spend time in verses 6 to 10? Actually, next week we're going to look at when God comes back to dwell with us. It will be a picture of the city and we'll refer back to the wedding feast of the Lamb. But in 11 to 16, we see the king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In contrast to the foal of a donkey, which he entered Jerusalem on the first time, Jesus now comes on a white horse, a charger, a war horse. He is here the leader of heaven's armies, the conquering king, the warrior bent on righting injustices. He is the lion, not just the lamb. He is called faithful and true, and we're told that in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Three times in these short verses we are told what Jesus is called. He is called faithful and true. He is called the Word of God. He is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He has a name that we don't even get to know about yet. Faithful and true means that He is coming and that His coming will be the fulfillment of the promises that He had made. When God says He will do something, He will do it. Even if we have to wait in patience, He is faithful And he is true, and his promises are guarantees. When people over the years have cried out to God for justice, for deliverance, and they've been told to wait patiently, they will not have to wait forever. You will not have to wait forever. The one who is faithful and true will make it right like he promised. He will judge And he will make war on the enemies of God, but he will do so in righteousness. Verse 12 tells us, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now we've been in Revelation for the third week now, and so we're starting to pick up some of the imagery. His eyes point to his ability to see and know everything, right? His crowns or his diadems are a symbol of his rule or his ability to rule, his power. And so we see that this king not only has the authority to judge and to bring in righteousness, but he sees everything and he does so perfectly. And so he judges perfectly in righteousness. We know what it looks like for that not to happen, don't we? So often in this world, justice is perverted. Our judges don't know everything, don't see it clearly, can't discern all of the motives and thoughts and intents of the heart, don't know the full extent of the damage that was caused. And so while even in our courts we get a modicum of justice, it always feels incomplete, doesn't it? It always feels like, I'm not sure that made it right, but it's something. It's a start. And that's when we get it right. But sometimes in our courts, justice is actually perverted. The innocent are declared guilty and punished for something they didn't do. 
the guilty with the right lawyers or the right jury are able to get off and declared not guilty in the court of law. They, get, they escape. They don't have to pay for their crimes. But this judge, his eyes are a flame of fire. He sees and knows everything perfectly. He has all authority to execute and carry out justice once and for all. And we're told that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Do you know that we're going to spend the rest of our life learning more about Jesus? Jesus will be known more fully and revealed more clearly in that day than he is now. He has a name that we, don't even, we can't even handle now. We haven't seen the whole of him yet, but that day we'll begin to more. Verse 13 tells us he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now the question that strikes me is, whose blood is all over his clothes? Is it his own? Possibly. That would fit with the previous imagery of the slain lamb. We see that in this scene, he has yet to enter the battle scene, and so his clothes are already full of blood. That would make total sense. And yet, make no mistake about it, there is going to be blood that flows when this justice comes. This is a picture of Jesus, the lion, not just the slain lamb. And he is robed in a, or he is robed in a, in a robe dipped in blood, covered in blood. He's called the Word of God. The same word that spoke this world into existence now rides forth as the conquering hero. And behind him are the, are, are the armies and the hosts of heaven, arrayed also in fine linen, white and pure, because that's what you would wear to a battle, right? And they get white horses as well. We're meant to move to the edge of our seat, like in the Lord of the Rings when King Theoden and the Rohirrim finally get to, get to the city and they're about to charge and meet the orcs head on. Get chills just thinking about that. Don't look at me like that. Mike's not the only one that gives Lord of the Rings illustrations. I get to as well. You might even get a sports one out of me. But unlike in that movie, there isn't even much of a battle to be had. The army doesn't even participate. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He doesn't need us. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The king conquers. The army does very little. But the one with all authority and power and knowledge crushes his enemies from his mouth. He rules them. The sharp sword, the word of God, comes forth from his mouth. He rules them with the rod of iron, which is an allusion back to Psalm 2 and the messianic king that will come and bring the reign of God. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's not imagery that we're usually very comfortable with, is it? I mean, the idea of grapes being squeezed and their juice flowing out as, is a picture of gore and bloodshed that will take place. It calls to mind also, remember in Revelation, whenever you read something weird or a little odd, it generally is referring back to something else. In this case, it's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 63. I'll read it, see if you can connect the dots. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red and your garments like 
his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. Merry Christmas. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. There's an entire series of metaphors in the Old Testament that speak of the wrath of God as being the cup, of the winepress of His wrath. It's the same cup that Jesus took when his hour had come. Anyone getting queasy at this point? God's justice on evil will be terrible. It will be shocking. It will be brutal. And it will be good. Once more, this warrior is named the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Verse 17 begins with the phrase, then I saw a series of seven visions we're seeing play out here which reminds you of seven in Revelation, right? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now there's a lot of stuff in there that's confusing, isn't there? But this much is certain. Jesus will return and put an end to evil once and for all. And it will be terrifying. He is the judge. He sees and he knows perfectly. There is no one who will escape his justice when he judges in righteousness. Not the kings or captains or mighty men, not the rich or the strong, not the free or even the lowliest slave. All those who have rebelled against God will be brought to account. This inevitable judgment is meant to be both a warning to us and an encouragement to those who read. How? Well, first of all, it is a warning to those who continue in their rebellion against him. There is not an action that you do that escapes his gaze. There is not a thought that you think that he is unaware of. There is not a word that comes out of your mouth that he does not hear and will one day bring to account. That is terrifying. Here the beast and the false prophet are mentioned once again. Not to elaborate on who they are, but to point to their end. The mark of the beast is mentioned, which everybody loves in the book of Revelation. And those who took on his mark, his symbol, we read previously that it was a 666 on the forehead and on the hand. What in the world is that? Does that mean we're all going to get microchips or barcodes planted on our heads? No, if you understood in their day, you would have, as a Hebrew or a Jewish person, known very clearly the Shema from a little tiny baby, little tiny child. It was one of the first things that were taught. Love, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
You are to write these commandments on the frontlets of your forehead and on your hands. Does that sound familiar here? Where is the mark of the beast? On the forehead and on the hands. In many ways, the mark of the beast is the anti-Shema, the opposite Shema. So rather than loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and worshiping Him alone, rather than putting that on your head and on your hand, you worship and serve something else. You find your satisfaction in something else. The mark of the beast, I think, is meant to be a distortion, a mockery, a counterfeit, the opposite of what we were called and created to live like. But notice that those who have taken on this mark continue in their rebellion. They fight a fruitless war, a war that they have no chance of winning. What we see illustrated here is the ultimate insanity of sin. Sin will let us down and will blind us to the very end. Still they rebel against the Lamb and against the conqueror. I said a moment ago that every word, every thought, every action is seen and known. And that that is a terrifying thought. Here's the thing. We serve a God of justice who will bring those things to account. And he will either do so in this particular moment that he speaks of in Revelation he already did. When Jesus hung there on the cross saying it's absolutely possible for me to call 12 legions of angels and be rescued from this moment. He was in control the whole time. What was Jesus doing? He was drinking the cup of God's wrath. He was bearing the penalty for your sin and mine. Those who put their faith and trust in him he was paying it once and for all so that this day we ride with him. We are not ridden over by him. But justice will come. Make no mistake. The good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to fall on you if you trust in Jesus. It means that it fell on him. And that he paid your penalty. He bore the cost. He took the curse so that you might live. And you might ride with him rather than being ridden over by him. For those in the room who still don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For those who have heard the message of salvation and rejected it, thinking that you can do it yourself or that there's something else more compelling to you than the Lord, know that that life, that choice is insane and it will ultimately be brought to account. Whatever it is that you're turning to, it will let you down. So wake up. Repent and embrace the Lamb so you don't fear the lion's wrath. This picture is also meant to be a comfort to those who have embraced the lamb but experienced evil and injustice. Makes us really glad that he came and bore the wrath first time, right? But also assures you that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of being the object of injustice or experiencing it, that there will come a day when he will make it all right. And it's not the kind of justice that feels partial or incomplete, but the kind of justice that satisfies and makes an end of evil once and for all. It's been said that Christians should never talk about the final judgment except with tears, both tears of joy that evil will come to an end and tears of sorrow over the punishment that rebellion requires. So what does this picture of Jesus, the warrior judge, do in you? Many of us, if we're honest, feel a bit sickened by the picture of birds feasting on corpses 
destroyed by God the judge. We get uncomfortable with the imagery of an iron rod smashing pottery or blood being spilled like the squishing of grapes. We turn the page and we read about the judgment of fire and the lake of fire and we think, oh man, no way. If that's you, I get it. But perhaps you need to let the Bible actually shape and form your understanding of Jesus more than your own thoughts. More than the current cultural climate that we're in. Perhaps if you don't long for justice, you might actually live a fairly cushy life. This isn't a problem in places not the West. The idea of a God who loves but doesn't judge, I think was invented by people who haven't really faced the horrors of evil. You see, as much as we want mercy for ourselves, we long deep down for justice toward evil men and women. We want to know deep down that Hitler's going to get his, that murderers don't get away with it, rapists, betrayers, molesters who steal innocent, they will get theirs, right? Yes, they will. We can talk about the big injustice out there, but what about the times when you've experienced injustice, being demeaned, violated, fired wrongly, where it feels like the whole system is against you and you can't get ahead? God cares about injustice, and he will bring it to an end. See, what we learn from Revelation 19 is that one day God will take up the sword. He will bring justice to everyone who called to him to help, to do something, to intervene. But it didn't seem like he did. There's a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian that I found really, really helpful. He's written extensively on this idea of justice and forgiveness, and vengeance. And he's a big believer, like the Bible, in a God who picks up the sword of justice. In fact, he argues, I think convincingly, that the belief in a God of justice is the only thing powerful enough for you and I to lay down the sword ourselves, trusting that he'll pick it up one day. Here's one of, his, one of my favorite quotes from his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Notice he's a Croatian. The land that he was born was torn apart by war and bloodshed and violence. He says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them? We should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What's the only thing powerful enough to cause you to lay down the sword and not seek vengeance and revenge yourself? Not seek to right the injustices of the world yourself? It's a belief in a God who will pick up the sword 
and do it perfectly, who sees with blazing eyes, who has all power, and who will bring justice in righteousness. Which maybe causes you to think, well, then why does God wait? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he come and bring justice? I mean, enough people have cried out for it, right? Enough people have suffered the effects of evil. Why does he not come? Peter answers that in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He's saying God doesn't experience time the same way we do. That's part of it. But here's the real answer. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Why does God not bring it? Because he's patient and he wants you to repent and believe. He won't until the full number of his people come in. God is biding his time and he will bring justice. Now, why are we talking about this at Christmas time? To borrow Mike's words from last week, it is neither holly nor jolly. We're talking about it at Christmas time because we find ourselves in a season of longing, of waiting, of Advent. Not for Jesus to come, but for Jesus to return and make all things new. Yes, he identified with us. He came in humility, and it seemed like evil won, but it didn't. In the first advent, Jesus was killed by evil. In the second advent, the risen Jesus will defeat evil forever. So believe in him today. Trust in Jesus today. Put your faith not in a baby in a manger, but in the King of kings and Lord of lords, the word of God the one who is called faithful and true. He promises to return, and when he does, he will bring the sword of God's judgment. The question is, will it be toward you, or will you ride with him? A couple questions for you to ponder this week as you think about Jesus the judge. This year, as you wrestle with both the joy of the season and the brokenness of the season, how does knowing that Jesus will bring justice fill you with hope and comfort? Second, have you embraced Jesus as he really is? The lion and the lamb, the savior and the king, the baby and the warrior. Or is your Jesus too small? There are times in your life when you realize your Jesus is too small. Probably the most profound time in my life was as a freshman in college when I realized that the Jesus I had created in my mind and the Jesus in the Bible were very different. And Jesus, as he actually is revealed in Scripture, is far better. Let me tell you. I'm struck by a quote from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the second book, Prince Caspian. Lucy Pevensey, the young girl, is back in Narnia and speaking to Aslan, the Jesus figure, as a little bit older child. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. 
In the first advent, Jesus was killed by evil. In the second advent, the risen Jesus will defeat evil forever. Next week, we'll get a glimpse of what is to come in Revelation 21 and 22. I would encourage you to read it over and over this week and meditate on it. Let it fill your heart with longing so that you might pray the prayer at the end that says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you are a God who has revealed yourself, that you are the suffering servant and the warrior king. Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful and true and that you will bring justice one day. Would you awaken faith in all of our hearts as we see Jesus, the humble child and the warrior king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.